business model that they have superior. These guys come over to Europe, they kill us, they eat us for breakfast. So what should we do? And I told him, Dennis, I think we should also get into the Casper business model. I'm gonna talk to our suppliers, come up with a mattress that suits everyone and try to do that as a side business. Dennis and especially our investors, they were very concerned. They said, no, don't distract now. Try to go with this Domando thing and do your TV advertisement. Focus, focus, focus. I could convince them that I could do it after the hours together with an intern that I just hired. It only took us three months until Emma was already bigger than Domando. Welcome to the Digital Transformer Podcast, your number one podcast on digital innovation, transformation, and venture building. We help entrepreneurs and corporate innovation leaders like you gain the knowledge and skills you need to build the leading digital businesses of your industry. Today, I talk to Manuel Müller, founder and CEO of Emma the Sleep Company, entrepreneur of the year 2021, WHU, Kellogg, H. Hust, and Arvid alumni, and angel investor. Manuel went from founding his first business at the age of 19 during his traineeship to building Emma the Sleep Company into the leading D2C sleep company in the world that is on the path of reaching 1 billion in sales. Despite only having raised 7 million in total funding, and despite facing competition from half a billion funding behemoths such as Casper, we talk about his three core learnings when it comes to building market-leading D2C companies, notably about how a lack of investor funding helped him to build a leading company in the space, tips on how to stay close to the customers while scaling, and the smartest way to identify opportunities worth pursuing. Plus, we cover many more insights on funding teams and inspiring cultures and much more. So with no further ado, let me welcome Manuel. I first heard about Emma years ago when it was still a very small startup. And by now, you've, you've become a leading D2C player. You've been nominated Entrepreneur of the Year 2021. And it's just like what, what particularly enticed me is also to see that you already started your very first company uh, at the age of 19. So you can say that you're uh, a true entrepreneur, so to speak, that's seen it all. And so I'm really looking forward to the session with you today and to explore what you learned along the process. And yeah, maybe let's start right in. Uh, maybe give the audience a bit of a background on how this all evolved, how your journey started from the early age on. And, and maybe then we can dive a bit deeper into what, what the major challenges you encountered during this early stages, but then also later on let's say during the scaling phase and so on and so forth. But let's let's maybe first start at the beginning of your journey. Yeah, just, just tell our audience a bit about how this all came about. Cool, okay, yeah. Hey, Kilian, thanks for having me, first of all. Yeah, as you said, I, I started very early on in the age of 19. Maybe just to, just to let you know about the background. So I come from a very small village in Northern Germany, like originally I was born in Dortmund. Then I moved with my parents to um, Ostfriesland, how it's called in Germany. So very much north to the um, Dutch border, very um, small, uh, boring town. Grew up there in a very nice environment, cannot complain. And I, I feel I have always been a very entrepreneurial person without knowing. Like, I think I already had very entrepreneurial st skills very early on. Uh, I was working a lot besides going to school. I, I come from a family that has no academic background, so I'm, I'm first gen, as we, as we like to say today. And it was quite obvious for my family that I shouldn't do the A-levels, the Abitur in, in, in German, because yeah, my family was just not used to that. 
but it was yeah it was very hard times back then like 20 years ago there weren't enough trainee positions so these Ausbildungsstellen in Germany and so as, as I didn't got into one of these training positions, I had to do the A-levels because otherwise I would have been unemployed. So I went into that. My, my parents were like very unsatisfied with that situation because they thought, <laughs> I, yeah, I, 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 I better go working. And, and when I, while I was doing that, I was still working on the side, was doing night shifts in the gas station during the day. I was working in a, in a, in a garden nursery and, and all that stuff. My, my, Actually, my grades weren't that good. I was always, I always tried to jump only as high as needed in order to get to the next levels. I wasn't very uh, interested in school stuff at all. Yeah, then after that, uh, I, I did my traineeship, uh, which was a, um, a traineeship in a, uh, at, a, at, a, at a car seller, at a Volkswagen car seller. Yeah, and then like during that time, I was looking into different ventures that I could start, like into different directions and I remembered that there was uh, a guy that I met on a on a family convention and he was into mattresses he was into medical mattresses and he told me hey Manu like as, as long as I know you you always wanted um, um, to to become an entrepreneur like back then I didn't know that word but um, like be, before like going to university or doing anything else why don't you look into that direction because the German medical system is currently turning around there's not enough money within that system to yeah have for example medical mattresses for nursing homes and hospitals uh, etc uh, and so i just jumped into that came up with a business plan without knowing how to write a business plan right. essentially <laughs> and yeah started my little first company with some funding from kfw which is a german governmental bank so things got rolling the, the mattress story got rolling so to say that's interesting maybe, maybe to briefly jump in here before before we dive into the the mattress story so to speak what was the point where you realized hey i actually want to become an entrepreneur and like you said you had it during your traineeship at the car dealership but but what was it like what was this feeling that ultimately or this like the sudden i mean i, I don't know maybe you can call it epiphany or this like sudden insight that you said hey like this is something that i want to pursue rather than going the classical path yeah yeah what I, what I figured out quite early on, I, I had the gut feel, I'm a very intuitive person. And I had the gut feel that if you want to achieve something, it's it doesn't only have to be like you, you cannot only achieve something by going the straight path, but there are always paths on the left and on the right that you can pursue. And one path can be, I don't know, going to university, have great grades, and then like try to try to go your way and step up but i was under the impression like looking around myself that there are also a lot of great individuals who yeah who who made their ways i mean back then in that small village maybe not that like inspiring personalities as many who guys know but i was under the impression that you can also make your way if you don't go the straight path so maybe maybe as one example, um, the German army wanted to to track me for military service back then. Still, we had to do military service, and I very much knew that this doesn't have any like impact for my life. I didn't want it to go there. It was a waste of time, and so I was talking to my medical doctor to come up with reasons why <laughs> why I couldn't go there. And like first, when I when I went to uh, this like army checkup with the doctor, they said, "Okay, yeah, you you should come over to us. You're fine. You're in shape." And so then I went to my medical doctor and we came up with some stories. I hope I can, I can say that from, from a legal perspective, <laughs> but I mean, it's 20 years ago. And those stories, sure it, 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 it turns out those stories were as convincing that they gave me the T5 grade. And T5 means we don't want to see you. Please stay at home. 
and and that's yeah may, maybe part of how how I how I tick and how I try to yeah or may, maybe one entrepreneurial edge that I identified back then that yeah so sometimes you also have to overcome the system if you think the system doesn't make sense. Let's phrase it yeah. this way. That's yeah, that's an absolutely very uh, very important point. I mean, if you it's an often cited example, right? But like you look at Elon Musk, he's like going to space where there's basically no rules. He goes to like into the 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 car manif or the the autonomous driving where there's no rules and so on and so forth. And like that's often something where you can somewhat like go around the system. That's true. Yeah, very good translation. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Cool. Let's um, maybe jump into your the mattress story, so to speak. Yeah. Can you briefly explain what was like what was maybe one situation where you said in the very early beginning, "Hey, this was a critical point for us." Like I was I was starting out, um, and suddenly I realized, "Hey, this is like a huge hurdle I had to overcome." Yeah. And maybe briefly describe what that situation was like and then we can like then i'd be super interested to know how you also let's say found your way through yeah so so you're talking about um the d2c business that that we are working on nowadays i think the very critical situations already happened very early on when uh dennis and i so my co-founder figured out that we that we are very bad in raising money uh i think we were way too i i, I would call it honest like we weren't overselling and that is something that, that we do until today. So we rather like to over deliver and under promise in the end. But especially in the very beginning, when we came up with our first business plans, I think they weren't just ambitious. And so, yeah, we, we got a lot of no's. Essentially, we only got no's. So we had to take our own money. We had to take some money from especially Dennis' parents, family, some former colleagues uh, in order to get the business rolling. Yeah, so I, I'd say that this was one of the one of the biggest yeah problems that we were facing in the very beginning, just getting funding. That's interesting because because you often hear, let's say that that the typical first founding round comes from parents, relatives, and so friends, and it's just curious to me that that again in this situation also let's say a holds true, but also that. Like I'd be interested in understanding how, how did you then ultimately, let's say, convince your parents and your friends and so on and so forth, or in this case, your uh, your co-founder's parents uh, to, to give you that money? Because um, I think it's also, let's say, probably a maybe mental challenge or like yeah. a, a thing you might not yeah. feel comfortable with, right? Like knowing that, hey, I have no idea whether this is going to work out or not, and I might be burning however many Ks, probably not going to be one case, probably rather like in 10 or 20 or even 50K. Yeah. Um, so yeah. how would you deal with that? You know, I think the case wasn't as bad so that we couldn't get money from yeah, relatives or friends because we were essentially working break even from the very beginning. So I guess they had the confidence at least to get the money back. But the performance and the outlook wasn't as great to, to get money from VCs, from professional investors. And may, may, maybe that was the trade-off that we had to do then in the very beginning, right? So as we didn't have money or we only invested our own money, we had to get the things right. So be, be, because like we, we, we had to like be profitable from the... Like from the get-go. Yeah, yeah. 
So like first order profitable and then yeah, hopefully turning the, the entire case profitable in year two or three so that we could also cover overhead. But yeah, to be first order profitable, that, that was our goal from the very, very beginning. So you had to really focus on unit economics and, yeah, right. and all that jazz, right? Cause right, yeah, yeah. That's interesting because yeah. a lot of companies, obviously, like they rely on, especially if you look at, let's say, the, the, the traditional VC businesses, they burn money for forever without yeah. ever really making yeah. any money in the first place. Yeah. And so in a way, your business model was really something that's like, that was focused on, on, on cash flow and on, on positive cash flow from the, from the very beginning. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, in the, in the very beginning, we perceived this as a threat. Mm. Also, we were thinking, okay, so maybe this is not a great business. Maybe we are not the best entrepreneurs. Like something's off. We don't get the money. Um, even though, I mean, we, I mean, back then we already had like a, a decent educational background. Uh, Dennis came from EBS and did his PhD at Goethe. He was with McKinsey. So we like we, we weren't like bloody young entrepreneurs. Um, but yeah, we, we, we just didn't get it. Um, and, and the great thing is that as we didn't have the money, we had to get things right, as I just said. And by doing things right, when you then add money, you can scale excellence in the end. Whereas if you, yeah, if you don't get things right, you put money on it. As I like to say, yeah, you, in the end, you scale shit. So, and that's, <laughs> and that's, and that's, and that's, and that's a learning that we got mm. from, like, in the very beginning, which in the in the first instance was a bit depressive, honestly. Uh, but then we we found out that this is our core strength. Right. It's the it's the core strength of the company, which we can scale until today. Mm. That's very interesting. And how did you deal with this, let's say, mental mental pressure that I imagine you've been under? If you because what you just said is that hey, like we thought we were, let's say, not good entrepreneurs. We're not good enough to raise capital. There's probably pressure on your shoulders. How did you like handle that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean the the good thing is that we weren't in as as solo entrepreneurs, but we were a team. Or like I already knew Dennis um, some years before; he was a friend of mine, and we had a very good trust relationship. Also, what's important to know is we are very very complementary. Like if you if you try to find two two people who are not the same, then <laughs> look into into our case, uh, which means that there can be stress from different situations. There can be stress because you can you don't crack a problem because there's no money anymore. You need to be creative. You need to problem solve whatever. And it turns out that for different stress factors, it was either Dennis or I jumping into the topic based on what kind of skill set is needed. And what I also then recognized when taking an outside perspective on our relationship as co-founders, that each of us uh, was very supportive whenever one person was, yeah, like, like felt too much pressure. So we were also like coping with the overall pressure and stress because we were very supportive on that and, and also very empathetic within our like co-founder relationship. So I'd say if, if, I would have done it on my own or Dennis would have done it on his own. We, we wouldn't have been here today. Yeah. Interesting. And do you think that, cause I heard like I had, I have my, I have my, pre, uh, my own experience with this, but also like hearing from what other people say, some people are strong opponents to um, founding ventures or founding businesses together with friends. Because I say, hey, it's like it's a very thin line to sometimes walk, right? Like, when are you talking in the role of a, 
yeah. of a co-founder and went in, in the role of a friend. Others say, and what I hear from you as well, is that you say, hey, it's actually so crucial to know that person well, to understand, like, so that you also have a trust relate a trusted relationship that you can ultimately, especially when, let's say, stress comes, uh, that you can cope with it. Yeah, yeah. I would, I, I know where that thesis comes from. Um, and I would agree that investing into companies where you have two or three friends founding something, or maybe even a couple, that this is not a good thing. And I know where it comes from, and I would support that, uh, that hypothesis. On the other side, and that can come from friendship or having a relationship or something, uh, you need to have a very good trust relationship. But you can also build a trustful relationship with someone that you are getting to know and then working on a business plan for, let's say, three, six months. Maybe not as deep, but I would say it's definitely enough to, to start something. And then in the end, it will be very much about empathy and understanding the strengths and weaknesses of the other person, which is something where Dennis and I were struggling for the first, let's say, two to three years until we really found out and reflected who is the other person, what is exactly the strength and the weakness and how to cope with that. Because as I just said, we are very complementary, which means we are very different in the way how we tackle problems. Dennis is very analytical. I'm very creative. And that's just one example. But when then dealing with each other on a daily basis, Sometimes you get frustrated because you think, why is that person doing things like very different than, than, than I'm doing it, right? And, and it took us two to three years to, to identify the beauty behind the um, complementary relationship that we had. Was there like a systematic process that you went through or did you like, let's say, purposefully, let's say, explore each other or like reflect on how this relationship is and what the strengths and weaknesses are of the other person? Or was it just let's say, in the process of developing the company, it just so happened. Yeah, I, th I think it came in the process. I remember that in the, in the first one or two years, I was like, sometimes I was, I was, I was a bit annoyed, and, but, but also like in, in the end, I was, I was lacking self-confidence because of that, because Dennis is, like, Dennis is one of the smartest individuals that I know. Like he, he has a very fast CPU, he cracks a problem, when only writing down half half of the half of the hypothesis, uh, and that can be very annoying if if you are rather like a divergent thinker, like and and try to tackle problems from different perspectives, have maybe maybe different solutions in the end. So it it was I think it came with the tension of working closely together, and then like really like yeah like 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 the tension and the heat that results from that complementary relationship so that in the end uh, you have certain eye-opening moments where you can really see and identify what's the strength of the other person. Very cool, very cool. So to, to briefly sum up uh, the, the first phase, so to speak, so you said like crucial parts were A, that you were like a very complementary um, founding team that could ultimately handle the stress of the situation of not really being able to, let's say, a raise funding but then all the, all the other like say challenges that also probably that you encountered and that ultimately you can somewhat if you haven't already this relationship with someone a good way to do this is ultimately by like for instance working together on the business plan figuring out how the other person thinks 
but that also like for you the the crucial really crucial success factor ultimately was that you that you didn't get funding because it forced you to really take this perspective of of the unique economics of being profitable from the get-go and so ultimately forced you to be excellent in what you do so have like a very very clear focus and then down the line once you let's say perfected the system by getting giving money into the system and fueling it you could like instead of scaling shit you scale the excellence yeah that's that's a perfect summary <laughs> thanks for that <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's true it's true and and what what, what turns out and uh, i mean I'm, I'm i'm going to whu next week for idea lab and i will have a speech on 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 exactly that topic like scaling excellence and maybe also with with a bit of lower funding I think many entrepreneurs give away too many shares in the very beginning. Uh, they very much trust uh, in investors and, and they try to solve problems with money that can also be solved like by, by the founding team themselves by just thinking about it in, in maybe a smarter way, but not only throwing money at the wall and, and trying to make it stick and then identify which way to go in the end. So it's a bit more, let's say, be comfortable with being uncomfortable, like financially in financial distress, and rather, let's say, use it as an opportunity to really. Yeah, I'd say I'd I'd I'd, I'd say so. But also, I I think there's still the big hypothesis out there that the more money you're getting, the more people you employ, uh, and the, the more cooler you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 not only the cooler, but that it will also help you help you succeed. And essentially, within our industry, we see that this is not true. Uh, we have two or three global competitors that started at the same time. One of them is Casper, raising half a billion uh, in equity. They are nowadays maybe one third of our size, highly unprofitable, whilst we raised overall seven million over the course of the last eight years, which is great for the founders because you still have a lot of the equity, but it's also great for the company because as a company, you have a different mindset, right? And And I think especially that mindset is also what drives many of the Emmys, uh, how we like to call them, like working with us because we need to be a bit smarter in, in, in doing things in the end. We, we, can, we cannot like solve every problem with money, right? And how does this trick, I think it's a fascinating point. And how does this trickle down, let's say from, because you have the mindset, right? But how do you, let's say, pass it on to all the other employees? Does it, I imagine at least it starts already in the hiring process and then like goes through continuous feedback talks and like just just forming a culture but could you maybe briefly elaborate on, on what you think are like the the core factors in order to really take that mindset that the founders have and let's say bring it to the entire employee base yeah great question because that's how dennis loves to call it our core differentiator and maybe to put that into perspective as i said we have those competitors out there they're all smaller by now so there's no sleep d2c company in the world that is bigger as of now than emma they all had way more funding and if you look into the different variables that we need to be deal with as companies like we mainly use the same suppliers we get the foam from the same plans the covers we have the same carriers like DPD, GLS, you name them, but also we use the same marketing channels, Google, Facebook, television, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd like to say like many, many variables, they're just the same, but the outcome is super different. And it took Dennis and myself some time to figure out what is the core variable that makes us more successful than all the other competitors. And it turns out it's the people 
And when I say people, especially besides the human individual themselves, it's how we orchestrate them. It's the culture and it's the structure. It's the organization of the company, right? And I, I, I don't want to go as deep because like it's, it's a super fancy system that Dennis brought up. Like Dennis is our cultural minister, I, I, I'd say. But it starts with yeah, the hiring, as you said. It's the weekly all-hands meeting where we present like different areas and teams. It's the way how, how we do meetings, how we interact with each other, the, the decentralized decision-making processes, a lot of ownership for everyone, uh, but at the same time also a very, very high level of transparency, meaning that essentially on a daily basis, like even, yeah, even an intern could know, I don't know, what's the profit margin in Japan or Australia at this moment in time. And having that transparency also forces people and teams yeah, to, to, to focus on profitability, to focus on having a low cost basis, et cetera, et cetera. So you basically have like, let's say, open dashboards for everyone to look into. And I imagine probably also some form of OKRs, also objective and key results that are openly visible for, for everyone in the company. That's, 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 that, that's, that's right. And uh, we don't work with OKRs anymore uh, based on the, on the size of the company. We figured out that this is not the right format anymore, but we have those weekly meetings where we have um, leaders from the different teams then jumping into one specific team topic, even though they might not be related uh, in, in that team topic, um, so that we can really make sure that on the one hand, we have high levels of transparency, but also that we have the, the greatest minds on the biggest problems of the company. Understood. Okay. So let's say, yeah, you face particular challenge and you, and even though it's not related to, let's say marketing directly, cause it's technically a tech issue, for instance, yeah. Yeah. you still bring the, the marketing lead into the meeting in order to. Right. Right. Yeah. Or like, like essentially also I jump into that, which is also something where we might be a bit different. Like, even though I'm very low tech, <laughs> I don't get anything on tech. The great thing, if you if you put like a tech dummy like me into that meeting, is that I can have an overall perspective. I'm not that deep into the topics. I can try to connect those superficial dots that I see, but also question things that might be stupid in the very beginning from a tech perspective, but in the end, they can make a difference. And that's also something that we, that we want to see. Because you force people to, let's say, get very clear and like explain it in very simple terms, so to speak, as well. Right. Yeah. And then, and then you might have like a superficial dummy conversation where then maybe even the tech people figure out, oh, I didn't think about it this way. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because, and I mean, th this this comes from the nature of of a human being. When you're an expert working in a certain area, you you focus on expertise and you focus on re like really diving very deep and. That being said, it makes sense that you can also like take a step back and then see the big picture, which is not always as easy, in, especially in like in we are now 930 people. So we are not that small anymore. So we yeah, we, we have a lot of experts. Meanwhile, yeah. And I think that's also, let's say, the, the biggest challenge and the biggest joy at the same time of a founder to be able to like really dive deep into particular topics and still have like the overarching overview over everything, right? Yeah, right, right. And maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm more often in this high level altitude when it comes to identifying topics, whereas Dennis is like Dennis can get very close and very narrow because he's a very analytical structured person. I'm more of the creative strategic person. 
and yeah, combining that, uh, yeah, can can really then lead also to better results. Yeah. Very interesting. Let's maybe shift gears a bit. What was the situation like during? I mean, we already covered right now. Let's say a bit of the the scale up version of the company, but in the process of getting from the situation that we talked about initially, we had struggles getting funding, where it was really about let's say getting it off the ground. And then let's say the, the current situation, you being a market leader, the biggest player in the D2C business, on this journey, what was a big challenge that you encountered or maybe the biggest challenge that you had to overcome and how did you deal with that? There are two big challenges, I'd say. One challenge was, so when we started the company, it was a multi-brand online shop for sleep products, essentially mattresses. So we had the biggest portfolio. We were like, let's say the Zalando of mattresses in Germany, like 180 different mattresses and then like pillows, duvets, you name it, right? So we did that for two or two and a half years, running on, I think, three million, break even, not super fast growing, but yeah, at least we could we could pay the rent. And what happened then is like we were already in a phase of starting the first Domandel commercial. We were like setting everything up. So we wanted to scale. Uh, we did a little funding round so that we can also afford it. And what happened then is that we got the news from the US that Casper started the business and that they raised like, I don't think it was already half a billion back then, but hundreds of millions. And they also announced that they want to come to Europe. And I remember that... I had a talk with Dennis after the hours and I told him, Dennis, if these guys come over to Europe, they only kill us. They eat us for breakfast. Like that, that, <laughs> We're that's screwed. Yeah. yeah, like we, we are so small and the business model that they have, it's, it's, yeah, it's superior. They only have one mattress and they build the mattress in a way that it really suits everyone from an economic, economical perspective. If that's true or not, I don't know yet. Let, let's see. But it's crisp, right? The story very crisp. So they just gonna kill us. And then I said, yeah, but I mean, now we are in this Domando business. We just got, I think it was 500,000 euros back then from some investors, um, also from high-tech Gründerfonds. So what should we do? And I told him, Dennis, I think we should also get into the Casper business model. Uh, let's give the child a different name, maybe a female name, so we can be a bit different from them. <laughs> and uh, I already did some research uh, within the top five of every European country for the female uh, first names to be given to a baby. Uh, there's always Emma in the top five. So let's call the child Emma. Let's do something <laughs> like that. I'm going to talk to our suppliers, come up with a mattress that suits everyone and try to do that as a side business. And Dennis and especially our investors, they were very concerned in the very beginning. So they said, no, don't distract now. Try to go with this Domando thing and do your TV advertisement. Focus, focus, focus. Don't distract. And I could convince them that I could do it after the hours together with an intern that I just hired, so to say, as a side business. And I did that then for like some weeks. Uh, we came up with a website. We also put two new founders on that topic pushed them a bit into the right direction. And it only took us three months until Emma was already bigger than Domando. Wow, and that's that, impressive. And that, and, and that was the starting point. And what was the main driver behind that? I think it was the crisp story, the, 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 the scrolly telling on the website where you can really make customers believe you don't pay like for the entire supply chain, but it's a D2C product that is being optimized to 95% of the people. So we had a great conversion rate. We had a very low return rate on that product. 
And a great margin saw that essentially we could already from the very beginning on, tele on television scale it profitably. That's very impressive. And I, and I love the, 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 the little side note of that, how we ultimately came up with the name Emma. Uh, I think that's, yeah. that's genius. And, then, and I think at the same time, it's so, let's say, I think it's a problem that a lot of companies face, both startups as well as corporates, right? That they just try to like get, get into too many boats and like completely distract themselves. And could, could you maybe give a bit more of a, of an insight on how you, how you, let's say, convince also these, these stakeholders, so to speak. So your investors, um, your co-founder and so on and so forth, that that is actually right now a, a, yeah. a venture worth pursuing, so to speak, because yeah. ultimately that in the, in the beginning, right. Speaking from that situation, it just meant even more, uh, operational complexity, even more, yeah. let's say things to focus on. And it's interesting because yeah. because oftentimes you say, hey, you you either pivot the entire business, but here you really said, okay, let's 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 do like a two lane approach, where we're gonna continue with one thing, and let's say try a little thing in the meantime. We're at the side. Yeah. yeah, it's. I think it was way too early to think about pivoting it back then. That's what we did one and a half years later when Domando was stuck and Emma was already, I think, forty million. Domando only one and a half, so we tried, okay, let's get rid of Domando now. Um, but back then, it was still an hypothesis. From my personal perspective, it was a very, very strong hypothesis. But as I said, Dennis was a bit in between. I wouldn't say he was against it, but he was in between. But especially our investors, they thought it's a lot of management distraction. Don't do it right now. And so in the end, it was a compromise, right? I said, okay, during the day, I'm focusing on Domando. But after the hours, together with my intern, I'm going to focus on Emma, right? And it took some weeks then also to see that there was potential and traction behind it so that we can also shift gears and focus more on that. And, and then you use the, let's say, initial traction to then convince them, hey, this is actually something worth looking more into. Right, right. And, and the great thing, Kilian, was that we already had this Domando business. We had the entire company structure and people. We were already on all those marketing channels. We knew which campaigns work for mattresses, which don't work. We already had some little TV experience for Domando. So the great thing was that we could put all those capacities and learnings on Emma and then skated very quickly. I think it only took us three months until we had a million of revenue per month on a profitable basis. So very, very quick. And as it turned out, when then Casper really came to Europe, I think it was six months later, uh, we saw people on social media complaining why Casper is now copying Emma. So that, that, was, that, that, that was a very interesting situation because it's a bit, uh, yeah, first come, first serve mm. from, from, a, from a consumer perception, right? That's super interesting. So essentially, I mean, you, you, you somewhat gained the inspiration from what's, what was happening overseas, which I think is always, or it can often be a good approach to, to let's say, anticipate also what kind of trends or influences might impact the own market. And then let's say did it as a side business, leveraging your own capabilities uh, or at the ones of the, of the existing business, so to speak, to then, then uh, build it up. Yeah, yeah. A very good observation. And I think it's something that we also love to do until today. I think we are not like as a corporation, I don't think that we are the most 
creative cooperation really coming up with very, very new stuff. But I think we are very good in observing the market and understanding the consumer, right? And then in the end, executing very fast and building on that. Especially in the US, people or like, I think many, many people think that especially companies in the US, that many of them are very innovative, coming up with yeah, being the first in, in some field. But if you look behind the scenes, also for the very, very big corporations, until today, they buy patterns, they buy teams, sometimes even semi-finished products, and then build it, like finish it in-house or scale it in-house. And I'd say it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's also partially that approach which we are taking. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting because, I mean, in a way that has the advantage that it gives you a pre-verified product, so to speak, in a way because if, if something works in another market you like the thing you have to do is maybe to, to tweak it a bit but like there there is some sort of customer demand like it's not that people in us are 100 percent different than people in europe it's just that like they might have slightly different needs but ultimately then it's it's the question how you how you adjust it right and and the same for what you just said like probably companies buying those pre-existing solutions because it gets like the first ideation plus validation process maybe out the way but maybe diving a bit into this how did you then really in this situation validate whether it was a an actual model like did you have particular kpis that you said hey this is something or did you go talk to 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 customers which i could imagine is difficult having a mattress that's probably not even there yet trying to validate is that something that's ultimately appealing in comparison to the ones that you can get in like whichever other store is out there? Like how, yeah. how would you go about this? Yeah, yeah, very good point. Back then, our market research wasn't as fancy and also consumer research wasn't as fancy. So what we did is that with the website that we were building, but also then the TV commercial, we were going to the, the, the train station in Frankfurt, Frankfurt Hauptbahnhof, and asking people waiting for the train looking into what we just created and trying to find out what stick to them. So what was their perception? So it was very qualitative interviews that we did in order to see whether we are on the right track. And then also like testing a bit of like willingness to buy, yeah, willingness to go on a second device when sitting in front of the television. So was the call to action appropriate? Was the value proposition appropriate? Yeah, we, we did a lot of that in order to really improve the conversion rate on the website and for the TV commercial in the end. So in a way you 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 sold them or pre-sold them, so to speak, on a product, like you just like right. you, you tested how you can like how do you have to position it? Right. In order yeah. to the product to appear to be like the best thing right. out there. Right. And it was very eye-opening, like talking about the first MRTV commercial. It was a it was a trick commercial, like a comic. I think we invested 10K into that TV commercial and we ran it for, I think, one year. So we like generated like several millions of revenues with that TV commercial because it was very profitable. It was, it was in your face. And, and we tested it uh, with consumers at Frankfurt Hauptbahnhof for some weeks and iterated, iterated again and again by doing scribbles. And what, what it turned out is that we needed back then, we needed to have a very strong focus on telling consumers that it's risk-free, it's a hundred night trial, like trial sleeping, so to say, and that you can send it back and get your money back if you don't like it, which essentially doesn't have anything to do with a mattress. 
But what we saw when doing those, like when doing that research is that consumers weren't interested in the mattress at all when it comes to buying the mattress online, but they wanted to have the safety that it suits everyone on the one hand side. And if they don't like it, that they get the money back. So we had a very big focus on that, which is not true anymore nowadays, because nowadays every consumer knows you can have this 100 night trial and that it works because everyone knows everyone who already tried this. So nowadays we, yeah, we might focus more on product and brand in the end. But back then it was a very, very important thing. Because I think it's also a pretty, let's say from that perspective back then, like a risky thing to do, so to speak, because in the worst case, if you're if you if you're good at marketing, but the mattress is let's say subpar or shit or outright shit, then like you're going to have a whole lot of uh, returns coming in. But I, I think that's, it's, it's a perfect illustration that sometimes you just have to, let's say, take a leap of faith as well and just like yeah. believe yeah, that, hey, true. this is, this is going to work. And yeah. we have, yeah, we have a good but product. But, but also when it comes to the mattress, the great thing is that you can, you can get those cohorts on the phone that you send the mattress to and like, I mean, at least those who send the mattress back and then ask them, what was the problem? Was it too soft? Was it too firm? Didn't you like the bounce? Some reported that it had a bit of a smell because it was like very freshly produced, right? And so then then you can tweak this over time and really come up with the mattress where in the end you have that 95% interval of people who like the product. So it's really still even back in the in the scaling phase, staying super close to the consumers, going out there yeah. with scribbles, getting the people yeah. on the phone. Very interesting, yeah. very cool. And you said there was a second challenge that you. Oh had. yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the 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 second challenge that was one of the worst days in my life. I'd say, I think we had a very great product, we had great consumer response, but then we were being bought by Stiftung Warentest, which is a huge German consumer association. And I think they tested eight or 10 mattresses and we were, yeah, in, I think, seven, six or seven, we, we didn't have a good mattress according to their standards. It was a very durable mattress. Also, it had some other nice aspects, but we didn't focus on some aspects which are very important for Stiftung Warentest. And if you don't have them or if you don't get them right, then you get punished on the grade. And that was a very bad day, yeah, because because we thought we had a great product, we had great response, but yeah, if you have a if you have a bad grade with Stiftung Warentest, then this really goes down into your sales numbers. So what we did is we went back, we tried to better understand the system, and it can be things like I don't know, your manual needs to have the right font size so that people can properly read it, or the mattress needs to have handles, otherwise you cannot turn it even though you can argue, do you want to turn your mattress every day? But there are some of these aspects, and we really needed to get into that system and figure out what's, what's, what's really behind it. Yeah, and remember, it was, yeah, it, it was some critical weeks and months because on the one hand side, we had pressure from others who had a better grade than, than we had back then. And at the same time, it was, it, it was very hard to get into that Stiftung Warentest black box but as it turned out, like we put a lot of efforts into it. We already had some um, yeah, best scoring products in the meantime with Stiftung Warentest, but also with other international consumer organizations, which in the end is a conversion booster for you also. So we, we tried to turn that threat into an opportunity by really getting behind that system and cracking the system. That's super interesting because recently I also came across that, that another company said, hey, we have like those, let's say, 
review platforms such as Clutch for, for web development and so on and so forth. And in a way, they score you. And depending on how well you score, you like get more traffic or you don't get traffic. But really leveraging, let's say, their scoring mechanisms and saying, hey, they pay attention to ABC. I mean, it's, it, it's for a reason that they do this, right? Because they have the experience in the market. And so similar in this case, I imagine that like Stiftung Warnt has, has particular, let's say, rating criteria that, that customers pay attention to. And then they say, hey, this is, this is maybe something that's important. And if you can understand those, you can adapt it. And it ultimately, even though it might penalize you in the, in the first place, later down the line, once you tweak them, it actually gives you, let's say, cut even better cutting edge because you can, let's say, make it an even more perfect product and you can perfect your sales channel and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's right. And in the end, like consumers really, really trust those organizations for a good reason because many of the criteria that they apply uh, is variable, not all of them, but many. And yeah, so we, we try to get behind that and it turns out that, that we're pretty good in that in the meantime. That's That's super exciting. Now, taking a step back, like we, we covered the journey from the very early beginnings to how you scale it, which the challenges um, you overcame in the meantime, looking back, what would be the, the one tip or one suggestion that you would give founders as well as people in corporates to try to launch new innovative products? to really, let's say, focus on or skills to develop or anything like that? What, what would be your number one suggestion for these people? I'd say try to make your business plan work on the back of the envelope. If it doesn't work on the back of the envelope, then you might not have a business. I mean, still you can pivot a lot, but if it doesn't work on the back of the envelope, and I'm, I'm saying that because I see a lot of companies where I'm asking myself, and I don't need an envelope for that, <laughs> what, 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 what's their business model, actually? And I think that that's a crucial point. Mm. And it's even more crucial these days when there's not a lot of funding. But sometimes I feel, especially in those times when there is a lot of funding out there, people just don't care. They think, okay, let's try this and that, and I can still pivot. There's a lot of money out there, and I'm, I'm a smart individual i'm i'm gonna get there awesome cool and looking forward what would you say or let's say especially in in the in the d2c sleeping business but also let's say beyond like maybe in, in the in the health business what what is like how do you see the future evolving um what are let's say also with the with the young generation right now gen z coming up uh, having different expectations um yeah. as well yeah. as let's say yeah, everything happening in the world right now. What what do so you, you mean? You you mean from a consumer perspective, I guess, right? Yeah, and uh, and what kind of implications does it have for a business? Yeah. Um, so what we see is that the industry is still very very fragmented. So it's it's a global market of forty billion. If you take it very narrow, so only the sleep market, and the global market leader is at two and a half billion under one brand, which is Tempur-Pedic. So we might be at a billion next year, hopefully. But that also tells a story, right? It's a super, super fragmented market. There are barely companies who really have global reach. Emma is in more than 30 countries by now. We, we have the aspiration to have that global reach. And what we see is that the topic of sleep has a, like, th that the awareness of the topic of sleep is raising. It's raising in the, in, in the more developed countries, more developed consumer countries, but even more, it's raising in the emerging countries where still people want to step up and try to invest into health and, and well-being. 
So for example, in China and India or Brazil, there's, yeah, there's, there's even a faster, faster shift within the environment towards better products than what we see, for example, in Europe. Yeah, I can, I can definitely echo that. I think like, especially talk, talking about Gen Z, like the people born between 1995 and 2010, these people are super, or these, let's say future consumers or those people that just entered the workforce are already big consumers. I think they're super health aware and Mm. that's something that will trickle down and will impact not only the sleep industry, obviously, as they track their sleep, they also might want to understand how, how does it look like with respect to my posture and so on and so forth so that I can really make sure that I take good care of my body. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Cool. Awesome, Manuel. It was a pleasure and a blast having you. And I, I think the this talk was very inspiring. Lots of very interesting and cool ideas. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And yeah, would love to welcome you again in the in the future. Thanks a lot, Kyrian. I had a very good time and it was a lot of fun also for me to reflect a bit on the last years.